Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Please take your seats quickly, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you. Hello, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to Tennis Weekly with Joel, Kim and Chris. On today's Tour Catch-Up, sponsored by DownloadTennis.com. Krachikova stuns Sviantec in Dubai. Nori takes revenge on Alcaraz in Rio. And Djokovic surpasses Graf for most weeks at number one. Kim, Chris, today is the 27th of February and we are here to catch up on the week in tennis at Tennis Weekly HQ, especially backed by our crowdfunders Caroline Gerling and Stephen Rankin. It's been another entertaining week on the tour, a surprising week actually, because Iga Sviantek, oh my word, lost to Barbora Krachikova in the final in Dubai. We had the Brits doing very, very well with Cam Norrie winning in Rio, as well as Andy Murray getting to the final, losing to Medvedev, who's made it back-to-back titles in consecutive weeks in Doha. And we've had some historic news today. Novak Djokovic has surpassed Steffi Graf for number of weeks at world number one. Guys, it has also been a historic occasion because... It's been a sad, sad day for me because Malek Yaziri, one of my one of my favourites, one of my favourite players who's you know whose history has been entwined with the story of the podcast, he has been sent into retirement today in Dubai in the men's event by Alejandro Davidovich Fakina. He had a wild card. He went out very easily, and now I've got to spend the, the next hour or so. I feel like processing this this sad, sad information. I've got to be completely honest. I'm not 100% sure who that is. Oh, Chris. Chris, you don't know who Malik Jaziri is. I don't. Oh. I know this is bad. <laughs> Joel, are you more hurt by the fact that Chris doesn't know who he is or the fact that he's now retired? A bit both, to be honest. I, I Yeah, I'm, I'm absolutely devastated. I thought maybe there was... Maybe there was one more run he could go through to the the second round or the third round. Maybe he could take another wild card into an event in the in the Middle East, but but sadly not. And uh, yeah, he's uh, hung up his his tennis racket. Although he will still be on the tour, I believe he is now. I didn't. I wasn't even aware of this. He is the coach of Vasek Pospisil, but yeah, he's now Ooh. officially hung his racket up. His playing days are over. That's quite an interesting partnership. But for, I mean, mm. Chris, so for the backstory for you, for yourself and for any listeners who haven't been with us since the early days of the podcast, uh, myself and Joel bonded over a Malik Jaziri match at the Australian Open in 2018. It was against Salvatore Caruso, yeah. uh, another name you may never have heard of. Was this on um, Rod Laver? No, it was, it was on it the wasn't. court, furthest, like in the corner, <laughs> furthest from the main arena. And even though it was like a, it had gone late, it was like five sets. It still felt like there was only about 13, 14 people watching. But it was that sort of time where I did, you know, I was talking to Kim about, hey, 
should we start a podcast? And that's uh, and that's podcast. how Yaziri is so related and entwined in the uh, the podcast law. I don't even know who won that match between him and Caruso, but I remember someone <laughs> accusing the other player of feigning an injury and, and all sorts. It was it went a bit sort of uh, grudge match. Kim, I think that the biggest the biggest thing to have come out of that match was the podcast, not the result itself. It was the formation of we the We should podcast. get them both on. He yeah. did indeed win it. On. He did win it. I can confirm look, it went up. to five sets and he won it 6-3 in the final set. So um, what a result for Malek. <laughs> I'd love to have him on. We could ask him how significant that match was for his career. If he remembers it, even you know, if he remembers that dude Does in the he crowd. Remember you? Yes, exactly. Mm. <laughs> um, let's come back to the present day, though. Otherwise, we'll be spending the whole episode perhaps reminiscing about random matches at AO twenty eighteen, which isn't what most people are here for, I'm sure. Um, what's been your highlight from this week on the tour, um, Joel? I mean. Your highlight from the tennis, but I also I'm I am dying to know how your pepperami pancake went as well. So if you can kind of fill us in on both, Ooh. that would be great. The less said about that, the better, I think. Yes, um, listeners. Yeah, I suggested maybe pancake and a pepperami sort of rolled around each other. Yeah, it's not a thing. It does not work. I definitely do not have the pepperami in the fridge before eating it. Like cold and hot, it, the contrast <laughs> it just doesn't work. It's a recipe for disaster, <laughs> so we can leave it. We can leave it firmly there. But um, yeah, in terms of the the actual action on the court uh, this week, what my highlight was, be- and it's my highlight because it it just gave me a lot of confidence. And it was Maxime Cressy in Marseille against Jeffrey Blancano, and he served what is dubbed the reverse perfect game, which is four double faults in a row, broken to love. It was very messy. He still won the match, which was great. But yeah, watching that, it just sort of gave me some confidence that, yeah, it it does happen to the top players as well. Messi from Cressy. Goodness, that is a bad (laughs) game, isn't it? I love that. Messi from Cressy. I I do think, though, that we have seen like this transition, this slow evolution of more and more players being like, I'm just going to serve two first serves as opposed to... I'll do a first serve and then I'll have my very steady second serve, which is my high percentage play. I do think you get more and more players now like Cressy, who, if you watch it, you can see why he served four double faults. He was just he was just going for it on, on every serve. And obviously that's a completely different approach and mindset to have. But it certainly feels like, for me, something we've seen become increasingly popular um, on the tour over the last couple of years. And he does do a lot of service practice, I was going to say, you know, most mm. of his game is the serve and the volley. So maybe he practices it more than others. So he backs himself to make it more than miss. Yeah. And the odds are very much in favour of him making one of them. But it did look a bit like when it got to three double faults, he wasn't hopeful for that last one. <laughs> I suppose by the time he'd done three, he thought I might as well do four right yeah, now yeah. and then just call that game a bit of a write off. publicity. Um, um chris what about you um a what what's amused you from from the world of tennis this week and i also want to ask i think you were having some pancakes last week when we when we had it you were having some some galettes yes i was Um, how how were your galettes well i sent you a pitch they went very well um it is with um buckwheat flour i did find that out so that's something for our listeners who aren't looking for pepperami in a in well cold pepperami in a pancake 
Um, a galette is very easy to make and you can um, make it sweet or savoury. So very much recommend for next year for people looking for a, a pancake recipe. Um, but kind of on the court and I guess slightly off the court, um, I have a confession and I also have a highlight. So my confession is that I only just realised why Jesse Pagula's nickname is so good being JPEG. I had no idea it was related to the image format. I had no idea. So, and don't you work in like brands? I have to send JPEGs all the time. Images, I do. I do. I do in visuals, Kim. So, um, that's that was a moment when I thought, wow, that's um, that's a low a low point really for the old um, for the old brain. But having said that, it's a great nickname though, isn't it, JPEG? I think it's I think it's the best nickname on the tour now. Now I know it's, what it's, it's about. It's better than billion dollar princess isn't it i think i'd take jpeg over billion dollar princess that's <laughs> yeah, for sure i think so but in terms of um why i'm bringing up jpeg at this stage and why i will be using that so relentlessly um when speaking about that as i only know now only now know what it means um she's winning us over on the tennis court but also on twitter uh she did a hilarious tweet this week um which was kind of mocking the fact that when people ask kind of what's it like playing the tour it must be so amazing uh, and she uploads a picture of herself eating Doritos saying, gets bageled on your birthday, sitting eating Doritos at midnight, waiting to get <laughs> on a 16 hour flight home. And the picture is a Love selfie it. and it is real. It's the realest of the real. So what a, what a legend. And I think, um, I think it's one where you can definitely uh, call her very relatable. I mean, she had a beer at the US Open and now she's having Doritos at midnight before her flight. So happy birthday, Jessie Pagula. I mean, so relatable, in fact, that I actually had a sad bag of Doritos earlier. So I feel like me and, and Pagula, we're on, the, we're on the same wavelength here. Is it your birthday? Oh, I just want crisps now. Yeah. <laughs> well, I don't want pancakes, that's for sure. I know what to get Joel for his birthday now. A bag of, of Doritos. It's nice and easy present there. But yeah, all this crisp chat, which is exceptional, it's making me want to have some some crisps. Although I'm not a fan of Doritos. I am a salt and vinegar girl. So Jessie is relatable, Ooh. but only to a certain extent because I can't relate to Dorito eaters in quite that way. But um, I do love the fact that she was just like so honest uh, about what she was getting up to. And, you know, professional athlete. I think that's a great way to spend your birthday. I mean, I would have had more than Doritos as well. I would have had <laughs> chocolate, cake. But, she she know, did it's have cake. I can confirm. Coco Goff did comment underneath her oh, doubles yes. partner and said, yes. I did sing Excellent. to you and I, I did give you a cake. So, I mean, it wasn't all bad, but I think... Um, Doritos and cake that for your birthday. Moment, I mean, that is, that is living the life. That's just a kid's party. Well, yeah. What I saw this week as well, talking about social media and, and tennis players slightly more glamorous than sitting at an airport watching um, or eating uh, Doritos was I saw that Maria Sharapova and Serena Williams were reunited they were both in London actually um, at the Montclair uh, fashion show which is a, a designer brand that I'm not particularly au fait with but <laughs> it was a nice photo that Mar uh, Sharapova put on her her Instagram of the two of them looking very nice and glamorous um so i thought that was a nice touch because they're both mothers now as well and both both retired slash evolved away from the tennis court so i thought that was a nice moment as well that is nice isn't it and it's good to see that the 20 to 2 head-to-head -head hasn't got in the way of that friendship <laughs> blossoming in yeah. retirement yeah. <laughs> yeah i wonder if they talk about that at all <laughs> um probably not they probably just talk about passion 
I do have one conspiracy theory here, though, that um, Sharapova is actually on the board of Montclair. So maybe this Ooh. was something where she's very pleased that Serena's there because of the, the PR that it gets her. So maybe there was mm. a business objective here because she is a director of the company. Spoken like a true PR and branding expert, Chris. <laughs> well, maybe they're just friends, um, you know. Maybe it was just tennis just and now they're just mates. Yeah. And just going back to JPEG, for ages, I used to call GIFs GIFs. So uh, that's my little confession <laughs> Joel, that I have to make. Joel, have you ever got uh, a format wrong? Were you a GIFer or a JIFer? <laughs> no, absolutely PNG? not. I know I'm a, I'm a master of all. A ping? A PNG? A ping? No, he's a professional. And moving on to the action on the tennis court um, and not random file formats. Uh, let's start in Dubai because we had the uh, WTA 1000 event uh, out in Dubai. We all thought Iga Sviontek was going to absolutely walk this one. She started in fine form, um, losing, you know, just a handful of games as she progressed through the tournament. Uh, also getting another a nice walkover uh, en route. But when it came to the final against Barbora Krachikova, shock horror, it was completely the other way around. We had Krachikova winning 6-4, 6-2 in straight sets, uh, beating Iga Sviontek, much to everyone's surprise. And not just beating Sviontek, beating the... Um, Number one, number two, and number three seeds in the tournament, uh, which hasn't been done very often. Um, Chris, what did you make of of Krachikova out in out in Dubai? What did you make of this kind of somewhat shock shock win? Well, I've always been kind of a big fan of Krachikova. I've always really kind of highly rated her. When you watch her play, she looks so balanced on both sides, and she moves so much better than I think people give her credit for. So that was one of my key takeouts of watching her this week. I think she also has this sort of uncanny um, ability to really wipe the memory bank of what's happened the point before and then play the next point as though the unforced error she hit that went way beyond the baseline never happened, which I think is a really underrated skill in terms of uh, having that mental fortitude. And she talked about with that kind of French Open run, how she'd worked with kind of a sports psychiatrist that had really helped her with this. And she is rock solid mentally. You know, she got bageled by Sabalenka and then went on to win that. So I think she she really does... um, she does put up great resistance and that was what she did in this one. She really knuckled down. Um, she played good percentage tennis. I think her margin was great. And I think Iga was a bit under the weather, she did say. And I think she wasn't um, necessarily feeling at her most healthy. But Krajikova, when you see this uh, matchup, I don't think many of the, the people in the know would be that surprised because of what happened in Ostrava. That match was pretty epic and that was a, a sort of a fully fit um, uh, eager so I was very impressed um, I do think that the scoreline was probably a bit more one-sided than we would have thought but if you think about her being under the weather um, I think we could forgive eager of that one and um, she can't win every match 6-1 6 club can she no that was getting a bit ridiculous the way she'd kind of started out this tournament in the, in the same fashion uh, as uh, last week where she only lost five games on, on the way to the title um, yeah critique of a bit of a bogey woman perhaps um, you know good game plan and a combination of the fact that um, Sean Tech as well wasn't at her best or feeling her best. Um, and I do wonder if Krachikova has shown Sean Tech. Actually, we, we talk about Sean Tech and her high tennis IQ and being able to adapt, uh, you know, on the court, always sort of thinking and being able to kind of change up your strategy if it's not working. But I think with this match for me, um, again, Krachikova has showed that she has a very high 
tennis IQ as well. Dare I say even higher than Sviontek's. You know, she's a great, you know, we know that she's such a great doubles player. And I feel like she's, you know, so got all these different experiences. She's a singles Grand Slam champion as well. She is another player who I think can just think on the fly and tweak things if it's not going her way. Case in point, that match against against Sabalenka in the, in the quarterfinals when, you know, she got bageled and came back to win. So yeah, I think that's helped her. It was interesting as well to read, you know, in January, she was like, I'm going to go focus on the singles. And her and Sinyakova both come to that decision after what feels like dominating the, the doubles scene forever. So it certainly looks to be playing dividends. And I'm really excited by this result because... Of course, we've got the hard courts coming up in, you know, in Indian Wells and, and Miami, but we know Krachikova's form on clay, seen a be a French Open Grand Slam champion, and you'd say she, that's Fiontech's strongest surface, and you'd say if there was one surface she was the most unstoppable on, it'd probably be, be the uh, the Parisian clay. But this is again, I think, put a little bit of a little bit of a reminder to, to Fiontech that she's not going to have it all her own way. Yeah, should they meet at Roland Garros, it could get interesting given the the last two times mm. they've played. Um, Krachikova is now back up to 16 in the world ranking, rankings. And given that she missed Indian Wells and Miami last season, um, she doesn't really have many points to defend because she was out injured for a while. So I'd expect her ranking to go back up there um, where she was before if she continues her her good form. Um, she's on her own sort of, you know, little win streak really. And um yeah, also only the fifth fame female player to have beaten the top three seeds in a tournament in the last 40 years on the WTA Tour. So it doesn't happen very often um, that you actually kind of take out the top three seeds. So, um, yeah, and also interesting scorelines. Like you said, she was bageled by Sabalenka, came back to win and uh, absolutely thrashed Jesse Pagula in two of the three sets that they played. Um, so that was sort of some interesting... Um, interesting matchups, but yeah, I'm I'm already thinking Roland Garros could be could be interesting um, in that respect. One match that caught your eye, um, Joel. I know you love a bit of a sort of scoreboard um, intrigue. It was the Madison Keys Coco Goff match. Um, tell us why it was, in your words, possibly the worst match on the tour this year. I mean, we've just spoken about our highlights. This for me was a low light because I was I was really looking forward to this match, Goff. Keys, we both know they've got tremendous ability um, and talent, and you know when they can play, they they could put on a fantastic spectacle. Did that happen in this match? Absolutely not. Fourteen winners to eighty-two unforced errors combined oh, in the match. Goodness. Let me just give you a distribution of of Coco Goff's sixty-four points that she won. One was an ace. Three were winners, 51, 51 were Madison Keys unforced errors, and then we had nine Keys forced errors. Yeah, it was it was a very messy situation. It was a very very messy match. And I mean, Chris, is there a player no more frustrating? I feel than Madison Keys in terms of has ability, but you're just like like where is it? The the erraticness she can show is to me at times just baffling. Yeah, I'd agree with that. I think when we've seen her, as when she first came on the tour, and even before that, when she took out, I think she took Serena out in a, a one-set shootout mm. in World Team Tennis back in the day. Um, immense talent, immense shot making. Her movement's been improving, but it's one of those ones where if she's off, she's really off. And I think there are some matchups that bring out the worst in her and players that are very mobile or 
can kind of hit very, very big. Teams seems to really cause her a problem. They their last match was pretty ropey as well um, at the U.S. Open, and Coco came through that, and that was also pretty bad numbers. I think I remember that wasn't uh, the most enjoyable watch. But I'd say, I mean, if we're talking about players who are up and down, I mean, we're going to get to Sloane Stevens later, so maybe I should keep a bit quiet here. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I thought we, I thought we'd agreed oh. not to mention Sloane Stevens this episode, Chris. But yeah, we will reveal why later for those of you who don't know what happened in the week. Let's let's stay in the Middle East now and look at the other uh, tournament that was taking place out there. We had the Doha ATP 250 uh, in Qatar. And um, yeah, interesting final because we had Daniel Medvedev uh, in his second final on a, in a row, um, going for a second title in a row, up against Andy Murray, another former world number one. Um, Andy Murray coming through, um, you know, in, in classic dramatic Murray fashion uh, throughout the week. So many match points matches. saved. So many match points saved. <laughs> yes, saving eight match points, uh, a couple of last set tie breaks. He is, is Andy Murray the most entertaining player on the ATP tour these days? Mm. I mean, he definitely was at the Australian Open for me. And I, I just genuinely think he provides the most value for money almost. I think he's the story of the season so far, arguably. I mean, he had a wild card into Doha again I wasn't really expecting a lot yes we've seen him play some fantastic matches uh, you know the, the Australian Open and he was you know in that first week he really was the I think the story of the particularly on on the men's side the story of the tournament but um, again it's been impressive to see him bring that to, to Doha and just show just what a battler and and how mentally strong he is whenever he's down all these match points he can just bring out his best tennis and you know really really challenge his opponent that it is not done until it is done and it was amazing for him to get through all the way to the to the final and although he came up a little bit short against Medvedev to me it was a little bit understandable because I watched some of the I watched the final and there were times when I was just thinking does Murray look a little bit leggy given how many hours he's put onto the court in this tournament but also this this season as well. Yeah, so I mean, just to get to the final, you know, it was it was up against so it was Murray Medvedev, and it did end Medvedev straight set six four six four over Murray. Which, I mean, Chris, did you think that was kind of a an ex- acceptable scoreline? I suppose is that is Murray, you know, kind of obviously had a long uh, battle to get to the final, probably quite knackered um, up against Medvedev, who, you know, is, is much younger and uh, was on his own kind of little little streak. What did you make of Murray in the actual final? Was this kind of a reasonable result given the, the conditions and, you know, where, where he's at really in, in his part, in his career now, nowadays? Yeah, I think it's a really tricky matchup for him in terms of Medvedev is also someone who makes you beat him. Um, especially at the moment. And so I think in this one, um, it was always going to be an uphill battle to get that ball through the court. Murray's not necessarily known as being one of the biggest hitters, but this week I do think he did hit the ball a lot harder than I've seen him, at some, especially on some of the big points. He was pretty fearless. So it, it was one where I could maybe see this going three, but I think kind of the key, the key thing for me was that if Medvedev was on, this would be a very difficult challenge, even if he hadn't had that much time on court previously. 
Um, but so many positives, though, I think, generally. I mean, although that was a 6-4, 6-4 loss, the only time he did, he did get to only play two sets. And unfortunately, <laughs> he was on the wrong side of that one. But you've got to feel for, for Judy Murray. I mean, I think she did a tweet saying, can't you just get it done in two? Um, because the amount of time she must have spent watching her son on court this year is something else, isn't it? He's being everyone, I feel, in, in British tennis, connected to British tennis through the ringer um, at the moment. But yeah, great, great result. I think he has already pulled out of of Dubai, given just he doesn't want to kind of force it. And, uh, you know, he's obviously aware of his limitations. But um, yeah, great week for Murray. Yeah, but also up quite a bit in the rankings to 52 in the world. So yeah, I mean, that that's that's great stuff. And um, Medvedev also continuing his good form as the first player to get back-to-back titles this season on the ATP Tour. Um, we did also have another, um, well, we had quite a few ATP tournaments um, last week. Let's go out to the Golden Swing. And another another Brit in the final. Another Brit in the final. Different result this time, though, because we had a Brit win. Uh, so Cameron Norrie playing out in Rio de Janeiro in Brazil um, was up against Carlos Alcaraz top seed world number two um in the final again um, we did say that it was, looked like it was going to be another Alcaraz Nori, you know. part two yeah, yeah exactly yeah golden swing uh next next installment Alcaraz and Nori show does that mean the Rio Open was just like a bigger like more a bigger draw but just slightly more filler is that what we're taking from that yeah basically a couple more Serendulos in there, maybe. Yeah. <laughs> you mean yeah, what, there's the, more than the, the, two? The, the yeah. long-lost third brother of the Serendulos. Yes. <laughs> they're actually triplets, yeah. <laughs> oh, no, but they're not twins, are they? They're just brothers. Oh, I don't know. Anyway, let's not get into the Serendolo uh, family tree. <laughs> but, yeah, Cameron Norrie, he's a winner uh, on the ATP Tour again. Five seven six four seven five. He came back to win in three sets against Carlos Alcaraz. Um yeah, Joel, what did you make of, of the final? What mm. did you make of, of Nori actually being able to, to kind of topple Alcaraz? Because when I saw they were in the final together again, I just kind of assumed it was going to go the same way. But, um, you know, what was the kind of deciding factor in, in him turning that match around, do you think? Yeah, I think a lot of people were sort of expecting, all oh, same matchup, same result. I do wonder that, you know, Carlos Alcaraz, he did he did look like he was suffering from a possible leg injury. I know he's, you know, just come back on the tour after um, having issues with his thigh and hamstring. And I did think that inhibited his movement, particularly in that third set. I mean, it was quite obvious he had to change up his strategy and just sort of go go for broke and, and keep the rallies um, at, at minimum. And although that worked to some point, yeah, Norrie was able to, to deal with it. So I do think that was quite a big factor, particularly as the, the match went on. But certainly I think Norrie has shown that he's just very consistent from the back of the court and also from the front of the court. You know, Alcaraz was bringing out a lot of the drop shots, but I felt Norrie was doing pretty well to, to chase a lot of them down. And um, he just kind of kept composure. And you consider with Norrie, I think he was a set down and I think he was a set and a breakdown. And he just sort of kept going kept plugging away and uh yeah it was really i think pivotal for him obviously to win that that second set and turn it around from a a breakdown and and given you know the the results from from last week you know putting that out of his mind as well 
really, really strong performance. And there was a bit of hoo-ha, wasn't there? Um, I think uh, what we've heard since since the result with Norrie not being happy at Alcaraz taking uh, injury timeouts. What, what's the story there, Chris? Is, did, did Norrie have a point or was he just getting a bit flustered in the circumstances? I think, you know, in the heat of the moment in the final, what happened was... Uh, that Carlos was quite visibly injured and he pretty much shifted his game plan um, to try and shorten the points because he seemed to have sort of a leg injury. Uh, And so that obviously kind of threw off um, Norrie's rhythm or he felt that did. He wasn't necessarily aware that his opponent, he said, was injured. He thought his opponent was just actually playing a bit better because there was one game where Carlos was obviously not able to move as well, but he was just hitting winners for fun because... He went for the go for broke mentality uh, to kind of stop himself from making that injury any worse. So there was a bit of a bit of rumblings about the fact that to say that you didn't know he was injured and kind of having a bit of an issue with the timeout um, wasn't good from a sportsmanship perspective. And I think there probably is a bit of a point, you know, that if someone does take a, an injury timeout, it's within the rules. Um, and it's obvious that he was injured. So I think it was the fact that he said he didn't know he was injured, which makes you a kind of a bit concerned because I think everyone watching was well aware of it so maybe mm. Nori was too too in in the final to notice I do wonder with Alcaraz you know seeing this happen whether has he been brought back to the the tour so early and maybe you know we look at Murray and he was saying around how look I know my limitations I don't want to reach them because I don't want to get injured again and I wonder with whether Alcaraz given you know what we've seen we'll, we'll wait to see if he does play in Acapulco where I think he's the top seed but it feels very very unlikely so yeah I think there's a there's a bit of kind of addressing of of the schedule and, and not maybe coming back to the tour as, as quick as possible because I do think this week Alcaraz was a lot messier in his performances than last week and although I feel you know he's very exciting he's box office news I get that and I get that the ATP tour and their social channels want to show all the great winners that he hits from out, you know outside the court forehands down the line etc but watching it on the TV he was hitting also a lot of shots regular shots like quite long um it wasn't all just absolutely spectacular tennis there was a lot of ugly tennis as well from Alcaraz and um again I think that just sort of played into Nori's hand and I'm just loving Nori in the golden swing it just feels like he's the only like good European out there and he's just really he's just really relished it I feel it's a bit like yeah, the I mean, Casper and Nadal tour that they did, isn't it? It's almost yeah. like those two are just waiting to play. Where are they playing next week yeah. um, on their tour of South America? But I was going to say on the on the point about Carlos, I think he ha- he does always make some errors. You know, he doesn't necessarily mm. hit the most winners, but the winners He's he, the he does make are right yet, at the he? end of a long rally. Yeah, exactly. So I think um, that's kind of, it's kind of how he won the US Open. It was not always pretty tennis and he played more hours on a court than anyone's ever played before so he does have that sort of wear you down mentality as well as um kind of giving you some free points that uh, it'd be better if he didn't I was gonna say you know we did make jokes about the golden swing um looking at how big a deal this is for Norrie I was gonna ask you both it's a 500 a 500 title is no small feat but he didn't really have to play anyone until the final mm. and then arguably his opponent was sort of injured so where do we stand on that versus you know the 1000 for for the women this week in, in Dubai where I mean it was the one two three eight fifteen or was it 15 in the world yes so it was really quite something versus 
uh, just the number two and then no one else in the top six do. It seems a bit a bit um, skewed. Krachikova didn't have to play anyone, I think, ranked above 40. So all her opponents were, you know, in the top 40 to win to win in Dubai. And that was a thousand event. So um, obviously in Rio, it's 500. But yeah, Nori was playing, I don't know, 63 in the world, 111 in the world, 83, 107 in the world. It's a very different caliber. If I'm Nori, I would absolutely take that, to be honest. Um, you know, you get, you know, you've still got to prove yourself. And, you know, for him, I think he's looking you know playing these events to get better on a surface he maybe doesn't feel as comfortable on versus other surfaces so if you're going to be presented with this opportunity go make the most of it and uh that's you know what i feel he has done i think the drawback of playing something like the golden swing is that we've still got big hardcore events to come and um you know he's got acapulco now and then we're going on to you know indian wells and miami and rather than you know be in the you know the middle east and, and europe or have played delray he's going to have to transition from the hard to the clay and now back to the hard and i think that's the drawback and maybe that's the reason why we're seeing you know these draws four or five hundred not have as many quality players as we would have liked because they just feel like it's that's a needless transition that i don't necessarily have to make he was there to get the mm. ranking points wasn't he i think he was already in the area it made sense Probably saw the entry the list draws. and he was like, yep, I'm having some of that. Yeah, second exactly. And it's mission accomplished in many ways. So mm, yeah. um, I, I agree. I think he might be booking a ticket to, to Rio next year. <laughs> yeah, well, it's also good travel, isn't it? Who doesn't want to say mm. a bit of Rio and Buenos Aires if you haven't been there before, perhaps? I always feel that we always hear news stories about tournaments. I think I was reading actually about Doha, um, you know, last week. They're like they're looking at for it to be upgraded from a 250 into a 500 and i remember you know last week we talked about that was a very strong field for a 250 but you never really hear of tournaments actually being downgraded from like a 500 to a 250 now i'm not saying i'm not i'm not saying that rio should be downgraded um but yeah you don't generally ever hear those those discussions and it always feels it only goes one way without ever considering the other way Hmm. Demotion for tournaments. Well, I mean, let's talk about the 250s that we did have because uh, we had a 250 out in Marseille, uh, which was won by the top seed Hubert Herkash. Um, he beat Benjamin Bonzi in the final. Um, well, Bonzi's second final, mm. I think, uh, of the year. He, he made his maiden tour final in Pune last month. But um, yeah, came up against Hubert Herkaz. She won in straight sets, 6 3, 7 6. Um, so yeah, defeating Bonzi, who was a was a local French lad. Uh, but Herkaz, yeah, back to, back to winning ways, um, back to title winning ways. I don't think he's won one since last June when he won Haller. Um, so nice for him to, to be back on the, the winner's circle. Um, yeah, Joel, what, what did you make of, of uh, Herkaz's week in, in Marseille? What did you make of Benjamin Bonzi getting to the final? I think for Herkaz, it was pretty scratchy to begin with. I think he was still trying to find some form, but he certainly, I think, grew into the tournament I think he had a very solid win against Alexander Bublik in the semi-finals and I think his serving it got better and generally speaking when his serve gets better and is more on song then he's a lot more of a formidable opponent and in the final I think again we just saw we saw what we know I think about where Herkaj when he plays his best tennis it's usually his serve is doing really well he's able to come into the net 
and his volleying just kind of finishes off the point. And I do think there is a case to be made that Hercage is probably one of the best volleyers on the tour at the moment. And um, yeah, Bonzi didn't really have, you know, an, an answer to it. And you know, I was, I was reading about, you know, Bonzi and, you know, he's obviously having a very good season at the moment, but I feel like he's still got nerves and pressure to deal with because, yeah, he, he had that final in Pune uh, last month and, uh, you know, lost to Greek Spore. And he, I think he had found it quite challenging, I think, trying to serve it out against Fee in the, in the semi-final. So I wonder also, yeah, if there's any sort of nervousness that he had playing at home that played into her cash's hands as well. Yeah, because uh, Arthur Fee, a uh, French wildcard, got mm. to get to the semis, so they're quite nice for the locals. Uh, Fee did benefit from a Yannick Sinner withdrawal. He is going to be interesting, I think, to watch at Roland Garros. I think he's on the cusp of the top 100. If, yeah, mm. he's on the cusp of the top 100. It's an inevitably going to happen. And who knows, is he going to add himself into the never-ending list of who's the next French male number one? <laughs> it's still Gasquet, I have to say right now, but I would love to see a showdown on Chatry. I'm sure we'll get many French versus Frenchman versus Frenchman clashes in prime time slots um, because that is how the French Open goes. But um, but no, I think it was um, it was great to see. You know that after our probably slightly too harsh criticism of the French men's singles uh, sort of rankings at the moment, I think it was good to see that we have got some of these players who are pushing on a bit further than they have done. Um, as well as some of the older generation who's also doing well. So I think it's um, soon we'll have to drop it, won't we? We'll have to be celebrating when <laughs> Fee becomes, you know, top 10. <laughs> um, so let's look at one last tournament before we take a quick break. And that was the uh, Merida Open in Mexico, which is a WTA 250. This was won by Camilla Georgi. Um, she beat Re- Rebecca Peterson in three sets in the final. Uh, Georgie was unseeded, but um, we all know what she is capable of on, on her day. You know, she she has won a WTA 1000 event back in the day. Yeah, let's talk about that one because although Rebecca Peterson getting to the final was great, um, the one match that really caught all of our eyes this week uh, was Georgie and Sloane Stevens in the quarterfinal. It was a double bagel, uh, which you don't see very often on the tour. Chris, you're a big Sloane Stevens fan. Did you tune in to see this or did you get to sort of five love and turn off? I have taken the approach that it, it didn't happen. She's at a new tournament. She's in Texas. She's doing interviews about how important the tournament is out there. Um, she's not worried about it. I'm not worried about it. But when I saw that score, the mind boggles um, because that's not that's not a Sloane Stevens scoreline. That's not a Camilla Georgie scoreline. I swear, Georgie will always give you a chance, or she's never got the consistency. I feel to to do it in in two sets in that sort of complete fashion. I mean, generally speaking, for me, that was the story. The the tournament was just me being surprised with how how well Georgie played and how consistent she was able to play. And even in that final, when she dropped that second set six one, she came storming back. So yeah, it was just all general surprise. But for when me. she is on. We do know that Camilla Georgie is very dangerous. I saw some of the stats from this that in terms of points won on second serve, she won 100% of points won in her second serve and Sloan won zero. So clearly she was serving well and she was returning pretty exceptionally. She still did only win six of 12 break points. So there's something for her to improve on in that victory. Um, But I'm praying for Sloan next week. Well, this week now, I'm really hoping (laughs) that she can put that behind her because... I mean, man, that's got to hurt. Her first ever double bagel loss. 
Mm, I wonder if it's just, I mean, maybe she just wanted to experience one at some point in her career as well. It's like a tick box for every tennis player. Character building. Dish one out, receive one. Who knows? Maybe she was really disappointed she wasn't in Dubai against Sviontek and was like, I want, I want, a, I want the feeling of a bagel. <laughs> I want to feel like I'm being <laughs> yeah, routed by someone. <laughs> yeah. Um, I mean, Georgie, possible dark horse going into the gold, um, golden swing, the sunshine double, <laughs> perhaps, you know, we've seen she's more than capable on her hard court, having won Montreal in 2021. So we will see. Um, but yeah, great stuff from Georgie in Mexico. Let's take a quick break now, but we will be back in the second half discussing Novak Djokovic and his new record for most weeks ever as the world number one. Uh, and also rumours of Roger Federer commentating uh, for the BBC during Wimbledon this year. And we'll be looking at this week's events as well in Acapulco and Dubai. So do not go anywhere. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com ACAST. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Welcome back to the Tennis Weekly Podcast, sponsored by DownloadTennis.com. Now we're going to move on to a little spot of par for the court yes. um, yes. to kick off our second half. Uh, Joel, I believe off the back of mm. your victory last week, you are now taking the um, turn of challenging myself and Chris. I'm still glowing from that victory, Kim. It's a great feeling. Absolutely. Well, I hope I hope you've been yeah enjoying that glow along with your pepperami <laughs> from the fridge. Um, but what what have you got up your sleeve for me and Chris? Yes. I, I need to win one. I haven't you won do. one in a long and time. I, I think I genuinely think this is winnable because I've got a list here that I think you both, you both could do well on um, because it, I think it relates to our formative years as tennis fans. Oh, okay. Yeah. Intriguing. This is a par for the courts back and forth. And mm-hmm. I am looking at the WTA end of season rankings in 2012. The top 20 players. So the top 20 women in the WTA end of season 2012 rankings. Okay, who's going to go first then? Kim, you can go first. Okay, right. Answer number one, uh, Serena Williams. Correct, yes. Finished number three in the rankings. Uh, Sharapova. Correct. Finished number two in the rankings. Um, Caroline Wozniacki. Correct. Finished number 10 in the rankings. 
Uh, Azarenko? Correct. Finished number one in the rankings. Petra Kvitova? Correct. Number eight in the rankings. I'm going to go with Angie Kerber. Correct. Number five in the rankings. Oh, this is quite tricky. Um, Lucy Safarova? Correct. Yes. Number 17 oh. in the rankings. <laughs> um, Chris, over to you. Uh, Lena. Correct. Yes. Number seven in the rankings. Dominika Sibulkova. Correct. Yes. Number 15 in the rankings. You're showing off now, Kim. Um, I'm going to... Oh, this is getting tricky. Have you said Ivanovic? Anna Ivanovic is a correct answer. Yes. Number 13 in the rankings. Marion Bartley. Oh, that's a good one. Oh, Kim. That is an incredible guess. And it's a correct answer. Number 11 in the rankings. Have we said Sam Stoza? I'm going to say Sam Stoza. We haven't said Sam Stoza. And Sam Stoza is a correct answer. Yes. Number nine in the rankings. Goodness. Oh, this is getting tough. Um... There's, there's two players still in the top 10 that have not been named. I've got a couple on my mind. I don't know if she was around like, up that high so early on, so I don't want to say her. Um, Garbinia Muguruza. Garbinia Muguruza. <laughs> it's incorrect, Kim. Chris wins it. Oh, no. Chris oh. wins it. Garbinia Muguruza oh. not on oh. the list. Nowhere near, nowhere near the list. Oh. Can I tell you the other players I was thinking yeah. about? Yes. Redeem yourself. I was thinking Simona Halep, but I think that might be a bit early for her. No, Simona Halep would also have been an incorrect answer. Chris. Um, what about Lissiki? Lis- Lis- I had Sarah Irani on my list. Sarah Irani? Sarah Irani was... semi-final in the final that year. Yep. Sarah Irani, number six in the rankings. And one more player in the top six. ten. No one got. Any ideas? We've spoken about her recently, actually. Petrova? It's not, but Petrova is on the list at number 12. I was talking about who's number four in the rankings, Agnieszka Radvanska. Oh, that is bad. We should have got that. She's been everywhere this week. So you could have had... I was trying to think who got to like the slam final. I'll go from one to 20. You could have had Azarenka, Sharapova, Serena Williams, Radvanska, Kerber, Irani... Lee Nart, Petra Kvitova, Sam Stoza, Caroline Wozniacki, Marion Bartoli, Nadia Petrova, Anna Ivanovich, Maria Kirilenko, Dominika Sibolkova, Roberta Vinci, Lucy Savajeva, Julia Gerges, Kaya Kanepi, and the final one, Makarova of Russia. Now, which Makarova oh, yes. was that? Is, that? is that the one who's playing now? The older, or, ah, Katerina. Yes. That would make sense. 
<laughs> not the one with the same name who they the put, like the year of birth in brackets on the uh live score can track. i ask where the inspiration came for this one joel this seems rather unusual i i don't know i just felt you know 2012 it was you know the time that tennis was in london for the olympics and for me that was a, a very fun year on the tour there were lots of big names on the wta tour and i just wanted to relive past glories Excellent. I, I quite like those I like, like trip down memory lanes. Yeah. Um <laughs> excellent. I love it. And I although I lost, I think we did we both did pretty well. Um so well done us. Um let's have a look at what's in the mailbag this week. Um because we have got an, a lovely email from David who has asked us, uh, hi guys, it seems like a lot more players are withdrawing from matches and tournaments and getting injured. What do you think is behind this? Um, so quite an interesting and thought-provoking question from David. Thank you for getting in touch. Um, Joel, let's start with you. What, what do you think might be the the reason for um, for the, well, the seeming increase in, in mm. withdrawals? Because there does seem to be quite a lot these days, isn't there? Yeah, I think, I mean, first of all, I think just the, the game in general has got a lot more physical, um, particularly on the, on the men's tour. And I think that physicality, that has been ushered in, you know, by players like, you know, by like Rafael Nadal, I think has led to more, led to more withdrawals and injuries. I also think that there's just loads of tennis on the, on the calendar. And I feel like some players might feel pressured into playing events, whether that's for sponsorship or for prize money or or ranking points. And again, they might not necessarily be fully fit. The season is January to, to November. It is very, very long. And um, putting so much wear and tear and pressure on your body, considering the court surfaces as well, it's not very forgiving. And um, I think if you don't pick your schedule and know your limitations that, that we've seen the big players, I think, especially do over the years, you know, thinking about Andy Murray and how he picks and chooses events, I think it can it can get very demanding on you very, very quickly. And uh, again, I think that's another reason why we're seeing, I think, more just sort of more injuries in in generally yeah and also i was thinking um maybe players are just better aware of when they should like reach their limits and and call it a bit of a day whereas before they might have just wanted to have plowed on but there's a bit more of a a self-care attitude like when they do get to that point and they're not feeling great it's like actually i need you know i need to look after my body and maybe that's a is a healthier attitude when you do find that there's issues um maybe it's a post-covid thing more germs going around like that we're not already immune to because we're you know not traveling for a while I, I don't know there's the whole load of things um a lot of sponsorship activity off court you know as well um like you mentioned there's a lot more demands um chris what what do you think what's your what's your two penneth on on this why do you think that there might be more withdrawals and normal more injuries perhaps happening yeah i think a lot of players didn't really take an, an off season kind of in the traditional way um, we've seen a lot more activity there, as you say, kind of the sponsorship. There's a lot, lot more money on the line, a lot more kind of pressures to to be on the court as much as possible. Um, something that struck me about this and about this question particularly is some of the quotes from players about the tennis balls they've been playing with, having lots of difficulties with them, especially when it's come to their wrists. And Medvedev was very vocal on this this week. And I think he didn't really want to be one of those players that moans about the balls. But I think he really does think the Dunlop ball is causing quite serious problems. He said he had a lot of pain after the quarter match. 
Um, and then in Rotterdam, he thought maybe it was just kind of him and Felix, FAA, who had the, the issues with the balls, who were very vocal on it. And um, a lot of the doubles players were having problems. So I think it's, um, it's, it's a case where there's a few factors, whether that's kind of playing a lot, going from different surfaces, but it does seem like a lot of players, I think he said that Holger Rune, Sitsipas, Korda, it was all kind of wrist, shoulder and elbow, which he thinks could be related to this Dunlop ball. So it's a real multitude of reasons, but it does seem like we're seeing a lot more walkovers, a lot more withdrawals and a lot more um, retiring. So I think it's um, a bit of everything. Medvedev could have a very good point then. Yeah. If the, if the balls have changed he's and, the, you know, as a result. the detective of the Dunlop balls. He's really getting mm. um, under under the fluff to find out what's going on there. <laughs> Let's hope they don't want him to be their top, uh, you know, uh, sponsorship opportunity. Just check if you've got a deal with them before you say it. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say. He, yeah, is he, he wants the, uh, the Slazenger balls to come back. Is he an Slaz- undercover Slazenger sponsor? I think he is. <laughs> I mean, are we seeing more on the men's game, like more withdrawals? I mean, if you look at, like, for example, Igor Svantec versus someone like Andy Murray, you know, their time on court within the space of one week uh, prior to, say, like the Dubai and the Doha finals. I think Andy Murray played just shy of 20 hours and Igor Svantec ch- played just over five hours. Massive difference. Um, That's huge. And obviously, as a result, one person's body is going to be a hell of a lot more impacted than than the other. So are people just not getting the job done? Are we just playing longer and longer? Or is it just because people are better matched? Um, you know, improvements are going on all the time in all sorts of um, aspects and more matches, perhaps people are just more evenly matched. And then as a result, matches are just going to go on and on and on. So it's, uh, yeah, it's a really tricky one. Thank you, David. Uh, lots to think about, lots of food for thought. I don't think we fully answered the question because there's so much, so many factors, but it's a good one to get our teeth into. Um, do keep your questions coming uh, each week into the mailbag. Um, before we uh, head off today, just a couple of bits of news. Uh, obviously, Novak Djokovic, uh, yet another milestone in his career. He continues to make history. He now has the uh, record for the most weeks ever by either a man or a woman uh, as world number one. So Steffi Graf already held that. Um, but the uh, Novak Djokovic has today surpassed um, her her number of weeks, um, which is just ridiculous. Um, this is his 378th week at number one um not consecutively of course but yeah that's 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 a hell of a lot um trying to work out how many years that equates to but my maths isn't good enough um joel what do you think about uh novak Djokovic's most recent accomplishment um do you think this is a big significance in terms of the overall context of the goat debate yeah it's uh it's it's an amazing statistic it's an amazing record you know it's nothing new I think to Djokovic he's been lapping up records I think over you know all over his his career and it's it's one I think that shows his his consistency and his ever presence at the the top of the game um so from that perspective it's it's you know a fantastic achievement and I do think that when we, you know, when all is said and done, when we look at Djokovic and compare him to, to Nadal and Federer, yes, I think we're naturally going to be talking about trophies and grand slams. And I think we're going to be overweighting and com- comparing them on those levels. And I think maybe for the tennis purists, they're going to care a little bit more about like, you know, weeks at the number one in terms of the ranking. 
Personally, for me, I'm still a bit more like I will measure the success on on the trophies he wins as opposed to, you know, weeks at the uh, at the top of the ranking. But it's still, I think, nothing you know to be sniffed at, and it just shows, you know, how impressive it is. Particularly, I think, given the era that he has been, um, I always think it's so hard to compare like for like time at the top of rankings because so many eras are are, are very different to each other um, in terms of the the players and you know the depth. But certainly the era he is in, I feel like that has potentially elevated this achievement. But I'm I'm still like Grand Sam still for me is the the de facto thing to to judge Federer, Nadal, Djokovic on. And talking of Roger Federer, actually, from from one uh, goat uh, contender to another, uh, Roger Federer was spotted at Wimbledon last week, uh, which is very exciting. Um, And there's been a bit of speculation about the possibility of him potentially getting involved in Wimbledon this year, perhaps as a, I don't know, a commentator or a pundit. Um, Chris, what do you make of this uh, speculation? Do you think he would be a good addition to the uh, the BBC Wimbledon coverage this year? I mean, I think he's certainly got the credentials for it. I think there are a few people with a... <laughs> Do you think? I'm not so sure, Ooh, actually. A couple, a couple less slams out there that uh, have been doing commentary. Um, so he definitely would know his stuff. I think it would be great to get his take. I wouldn't necessarily want him for every match. I'd like him to be used a bit like, you know, a John Macker in the sense that we get him for the semi-finals and maybe the final. Mm. Um, so I just think, you know, he is such a, a legend of the game. He almost feels, obviously, he's tennis royalty. And I just don't want to see him out there, you know, commentating on the qualies or anything like that. You know, I want him to stick to the, the marquee matches. But he is a big fan of tennis. So, he, I mean, he'll be watching anyway, I imagine. So... Maybe this is just a, a way for him to stay closer to the action. It could add a new level or layer to the the GOAT or the big three debate, I feel. Imagine, you you just know the broadcasters are like, get me Roger Federer commentating on Novak Djokovic match. And uh, I would be fascinated to see... I would be fascinated to see how that turns out. I think it's really nice when you have recently retired players because they add... Um... Yeah, much more like... What it was like uh, to play know. them, you know? Mm. Yeah, they've got so much more direct experience of those players and facing them, you know, than someone who retired 50 years ago. I mean, I prefer to listen to the, the more recently retired players. I, I personally think they're more engaging for, you know, the current audience, perhaps. So I think it'd be great. I'm all for Roger Federer getting involved. And I, I think he'll just miss it otherwise. I think he wants to get get involved um, in some way uh, maybe he could replace Sue Barker, Sue Barker. You know, maybe Ooh. he could just host the whole fortnight <laughs> she uh, missed a lot yeah. of that replacement <laughs> um, let's have a look though um, you know that's a long way off but let's look at what's happening this week on tour we've got 500 events out in Acapulco and Dubai for the men also uh, we've got an event in Chile uh, on the clay of the Golden Swing and um, we've also got hard court tournaments in Austin Texas where Sloane Stevens is hoping not to get double bagels again um, and we've got the Monterey <laughs> open for the WTA as well um, what are you most looking forward to obviously Joel you were looking forward to Malik Jaziri mm. playing in his final tournament but he's he's sadly lost already so is there something else you're looking forward to now um, now that he's finished yeah I mean of course we've just spoken about Novak Djokovic it'll be great to see him back on the tour um, in Dubai really tough field I think um, he's got Medvedev in his half um, Greek Spore as well, who's been playing great, Herkaj. So I think that's going to be quite a tough 
uh, test for him um, to get to the final. So I'm interested to see how he gets on. Um, and also Acapulco. Um, I love this. And I didn't even realise this. Matteo Berrettini's brother. Yes, Matteo Berrettini has a brother who I had no idea about. I'm probably saying this wrong. Jacopo Berrettini came through as a qualifier. Sounds like you've made this up, Joel. It really does. (laughs) It sounds too good to be true. But came through qualifying, ranked, I think, in around the the 850s or 860s. Um, And yeah, he's playing Oscar Otter, I think, in the first round in Acapulco. So um, yeah, yeah, like Berrettini brothers on tour. So he must have got a wild card for qualifying, surely then. Yeah, it's... Maybe someone I think he did, actually. It was something... Goodness. Are they going to play the Sitzpass brothers at some point? Yeah. Um, I'm going to have a look at the Ben Shelton, Holger Runa match. That they're doubles partners, I believe, in Indian Wells. So clearly they get along. So that'll be quite an intriguing affair. I think my money is that on that one going three. Yes, and uh, who who knows? Will Will Carlos Alcaraz uh, take to the mm. court as well? Because we don't know yet if he's playing or not. Uh, if if his injury is going to be too much, so. We'll see uh, if that happens. And Chris, you said to me, I know you said that was almost too good to be true about Berrettini and uh, he's got a brother. Um, We've got to say Emma Raducanu's not playing Austin, Texas because she's got tonsillitis of all things. When I did see that headline, I thought someone had made something up on Twitter as a bit of a tennis Twitter joke Um, because I've never (laughs) seen anyone pull up for tonsillitis. It's quite specific. You know, normally it's a viral Mm. illness or something. So Mm. um, I look forward to seeing that at the bottom of like the draw sheet. I, it might say it. I'll have a check. Emma Raducanu, tonsillitis. Left ankle tonsillitis, <laughs> yeah. A bit of both. Uh, well, we wish her a speedy recovery. And um, yeah, obviously me and her have the same Instagram strategy, later grams. Um, but yeah, let's let's see how she gets on. Let's let's hope she, she's back to business soon. Um, and we'll be back next week uh, for more of the same from Tennis Weekly. Listeners, I hope you've enjoyed our latest episode of the Tennis Weekly podcast. Remember to subscribe to us to stay up to date on all the action to come from the ATP and WTA tours. We are on Apple Podcasts, Spotify and all major podcasting platforms out there. And if you like what you're hearing, then make sure to leave us a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. You can also follow us on social media or email the show. We're on Facebook, Instagram and Twitter at Tennis Weekly Pod uh, or email us on tennisweeklypod at gmail.com. And don't forget to check out our website www.tennisweekly.co.uk. And we will be back next Monday at Tennis Weekly HQ for another tour catch up. So I hope you can join us for that. But in the meantime, it's goodbye from Kim. Goodbye. It's goodbye from Chris. Goodbye. And it's goodbye from me. We'll see you again soon. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.